Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we continue through the Book of Romans. During this sermon, we look at Paul's prayer for the Roman churches, how he longs to strengthen them through Christ, and Paul's desire to be useful for the sake of the gospel. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Longing to be Useful. Romans 1, we're going to read verses 8 through 15. We won't make it all the way through that section today, but we will get, uh, we'll get started. We'll get about halfway through this section, this next paragraph. So Romans 1, beginning in verse 8, oh, we'll read it together and then we'll pray, ask for God's help and blessing. So verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of his son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let's look to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Oh, Lord, our God. Father, just very humbly, um, as your servants right now, God, we cry out to you and we ask for the grace we're going to need, uh, Lord, over this next little bit of time, God, as we study your word. Um, Father, it can seem like such a simple thing, but Lord, we know from your word there is an absolute war that is raging right now over whether or not we'll hear and heed and come to trust in you and be grown Father, and what this will mean for our souls. So I just ask God that you will come right now. Please send your Holy Spirit and do what only you can do. We cannot, only you can do. And God, break us, convict us, show us, lower us, bring us to yourself, oh God, for your sons and daughters who are here, who are following Christ. God, establish us, mature us, deepen us, disciple us, bring us further, Lord, into obedience to you. But God, any in the room that has not yet bowed, not yet realized their need, not yet turned away from their rebellion and come to place their faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved and, and to follow after you, God, I pray that this will be the time, Lord, that they are awakened, they are converted, they are born again. Please, God, win in this time. Accomplish the miracles that you do through your word, oh God. Have mercy on me, Lord, just a thousand things I need in order to preach in a way that doesn't get in the way and is not foolish and is just helpful. So please, God, bring all that about and help all of us, oh God, that we will worship you right now. So please, Lord, for the glory of your name, prepare praise for yourself. And we ask this through the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, has a lesser known short story um, about an artist who develops in his mind the image of what would become his magnum opus. He kind of paints the image in his mind. He can, he can see it. He can see every brush stroke, every, every detail of, of what it will take to bring this about. This work will be his defining piece. And so he sets his canvas and he begins. This is the kind of masterpiece that will take years upon years to accomplish. And he, and he sets out to engage in the work. But he finds day after day that he's pulled away by the urgencies of life. The pressing needs and the distractions of life. Not, not all of them bad. Some of them, there's a moment that he goes and helps a sick neighbor, but... He finds himself pulled away and each day losing more and more time. And eventually he comes to the day of his death. 
with an unfinished piece. A canvas only halfway completed. And as he passes from this life into the next, he, he gets this vision of this image that he had in his mind. There with every, every brush stroke, every magnificent detail of the way he wanted to do it. And he lifts his arms and declares unto God, it's a gift. And what Tolkien meant by that is he meant it to be a metaphor on the using of our lives in order to offer up the best of ourselves, the, the project of um, making ourselves into the, the image of what he wants us to be as a gift unto God. So what kind of image do you have in your mind of what you want to become, of what you want to accomplish, of what you want to define your life? Now, here's the moment where I'm going to kind of break from where you might think we're going and the kind of after-school special that you might think is going here. Many dreams are stupid. Many dreams are a waste of a life. The world is constantly absurdly telling us to follow your dreams and to uh, uh, chase the desires of your heart. But even five minutes of thinking of that will remind you that Adolf Hitler did just that quite diligently. Your dreams are only valid insofar as they honor God and fulfill the purpose for which God put you here. And one of the primary reasons why God gives us heroes from the Bible is so that they will be held out to us as a model to imitate so that in our hearts there would be this, this stirring, this chill up your spine that says, I want to be that. This is God holding forth and saying, here's a good example. Here's a project. Here's an ambition. And God gave you Paul. So you would want to be like him. In Paul's day, he was obviously incredibly useful for the kingdom of God, but greatness has a way of inspiring into the generations to come. God has given us the apostle Paul and others, but we're spending time in a book that the Holy Spirit moved Paul and his longings, his ambitions, his, his godly desires. God has given him to us so that we will be inspired to see these godly ambitions and godly usefulness and want to be like him. And so I say all that to say this, the great longing of Paul's heart, the great ambition of his soul, his great dream, the gift he wanted to offer God with his life was to be useful, was to be found faithful was for God to look on him and smile and be pleased with what he had done, how he had lived. He longed to serve the kingdom of God, magnify the name of Jesus Christ, and, and make the gospel known, the message of Christ to the ends of the earth. Paul ached, hungered, laid on his bed at night and dreamed about how to get the gospel further, about how to strengthen more believers. And we see some of that longing come out in this passage. We see some of those gospel ambitions just oozing out of his heart. And there's something that God wants us to, to feed on from that. Because every soul must embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life. And because God has designed the message of Christ, what we call the gospel, to be the primary way that God is showing his glory, accomplishing his purposes, building his kingdom, Jesus, building his church to be the primary way Paul longed in his heart. The great desire of his life was to be as useful as possible in making the gospel known. Now, Christian, the way that you will fulfill your calling won't be exactly like Paul. But the gospel is the way that God is accomplishing his purposes. And so we will all participate in this in many ways. And scripture's got all these different uh, metaphors and illustrations for how we all fit together. We're, we're a body with many different parts and we're all functioning for the same purpose. The glory of God, the kingdom of God, the, the spread of the gospel. We all participate in this. But in somehow, some way, our lives only have usefulness insofar as we live the fulfillment of the purpose that God has given us. 
the serving of his will. Let me, let me kind of pause here for just a second at the very beginning because I don't want to just assume that we all know some of the terms we're using and things because if you're not real familiar with the Bible yet, kind of new to studying and things, here's a question that I kind of anticipate maybe in your heart. Paul here talks about, and, and, and all through scripture, there is this aching, longing, risking of life. And yes, the apostles died in order to tell news, in order to tell a message. So why is there this great emphasis on the telling of the gospel, the message of Christ? Friends, the reason why is this. Every soul has sinned against God. We all know this, but what is often glossed over by the culture and by cultural Christianity, what is often glossed over is that sin is a big deal. You know, that Ezekiel 23 passage that we read, like you got to know as I read it before the surface and I think, man, this is what I'm reading today in worship, pretty mature, pretty bold. Here is one of the things that passages like that do. There is absolutely nobody who after reading that passage doesn't think that God takes sin seriously, which is what cultural Christianity is always just sort of glossing over. Oh yeah, you sinned, but God's just your big grandpa in the sky. Everything's fine. No, sin is cosmic treason against the creator. He has a wrath he is bringing against rebellion against him. If you have not embraced Jesus Christ by faith, I don't say this to be mean. I say this out of love to warn you. There is nothing more serious. You face eternity in hell. And that's not because of any cruelty in God, in love, in mercy. He gave his son. He has sent his message of the need to turn to him, to have forgiveness of sins into all the world. This is why the church has the job, our job, is to go into the ends of the earth to make this message known because every time a soul hears about the message of Christ and then sees he is the remedy, he is where the forgiveness is and they come to him, this is the kingdom of God expanding. Another soul is bowing to his rule. That's another member in the family, more sons and daughters. And so the reason why all throughout scripture the telling of the gospel is, is told with this heavy weight is because the eternal destiny of souls depends on it, including yours this morning, if you have not yet turned to Christ. It's our prayer. We've been praying all morning, all week leading up to today, that you would be converted today. Trust in Christ. What we see here is Paul's aching and longing to make the gospel known and to be as useful and effective as possible in doing that. So throughout this, this paragraph here, 8 through 15, as we walk through, this is sort of the central idea. His longing to come to Rome in order to preach the gospel. So we're going we're gonna to bring out three points in this whole passage. We're only going to cover two today and then Lord willing make it through the third one next Sunday. So here is number one if you're taking notes. Let's look at Paul's prayer for the Roman believers. If you look at verse eight again, um, one of the very first things we see here is Paul talking about his praying for them and, and notice a, a few parts. There's, there's, I, think, I think I see three things he prays for. The very first thing is just thanking God for them. The news of their faith had reached throughout the Roman empire. And, and here's a little background help to that. It seems pretty clear based on several things that come out in the book of Acts and in the book of Romans here that neither Paul nor any apostle had ever been to Rome and had, they did not plant the church at Rome. We don't know who did. We, we have no idea. Um, it could have been someone who was there in Jerusalem at Acts 2. Remember when, when all these surrounding nations were there and they all heard the gospel and many of them stayed in Jerusalem for a little while, were grown in the faith and then went back to their hometowns. Very possible that somebody from Rome was there, traveled back to Rome, told the gospel, started a church. We see some other times where another believer who was just traveling somewhere, somewhere else encounters Christians, hears the gospel, travels back to their hometown. You get churches being planted all over. We don't know who planted at Rome, um, but it's kind of like this. Paul's 
longing and what happens here. Uh, about a decade ago, I was up on a mountain range in Peru and we were traveling through villages and preaching the gospel with the hope of gathering believers into churches and such. And we entered one village and we found a church that we didn't know was there. I don't mean a building. They had no building. We found a group of believers and they would occasionally meet together um, in just one of the Christians' home. We went there and worshiped with them one night. There was a pig tied up at the door, drunk husband laid out in the courtyard right outside. These believers would, would gather together and, and meet. But, but one of the things that just pained us so badly is they had no shepherd who knew the Bible. They had no one who could consistently do the work of, of, of teaching and instruction of them and things. There was, there was a man who had kind of risen to a place of leadership and he gathered them together, but he didn't know the Bible all that well. And, and we don't really know how they got the gospel. Never found that out. But they met together. And so one of the things we tried to do is when we came down from the mountain and got into some of those cities down at the foothills is we tried to arrange for a pastor to take his motorcycle up the four and a half hour trip up the mountain to go care for these souls. Little side note, maybe a little fleshly moment here. I think about those believers and I kind of want to slap some American Christians sometimes for what gets taken advantage of, okay? Rant over, fleshly moment over. I'll repent later if I need to, okay? The believers in Rome, it appears, had never had anyone come and give a, 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 a kind of consistent ministry to them. That consistent preaching and teaching, they'd never had a Paul type or even a Timothy type to come and seriously pour themselves into these believers. They never had serious discipleship. They'd never gotten training and equipping in order to bring them to maturity and that kind of growth that comes with robust preaching and teaching. And that is some of what is driving this whole letter to Romans. And um, if we can just take a step back here and pause for a second and feel a little gratitude over God's providence. The reason why the book of Romans is so amazing is because Paul felt the burden that he did, that no one had ever been able to be there, and he felt this urge to give them this majestic work, the greatest, uh, greatest work of theology ever written, and the Holy Spirit moved and inspired so that what he said is exactly what God wanted. But in the same way that we rejoiced over these believers that we found in Peru, Paul has heard about this church family in Rome and he rejoiced. When you love the things that God loves, when you rejoice in the things that God rejoices in, when you desire the things that God desires, you will get misty-eyed when you hear about souls turning from darkness to light. Paul thanks God for them. The second part of his praying for them was just simply that he says he lifted them up unceasingly. See that language there, constantly, unceasingly, day after day after day, him praying there. Um, now, about the only comment I want to make on that is this. Um, sometimes it's kind of a tendency that Christians can think of prayer. I don't know, kind of maybe how you think of journaling. <laughs> like, sure, that can be helpful if you're into that kind of thing. And they have kind of a low Wait on there. The only thing I want to say is nobody in the Bible agrees with that, <laughs> including Jesus, who devoted hours and hours of his ministry to praying. And Paul himself, who, would you agree, accomplished more in his life that matters than anybody else in history? We see the example of him praying like a maniac, constantly lifting up believers and asking God, all the things that Jesus prayed for us in John 17, that the greatest purposes of God would be accomplished in us. Paul prays for them. And then thirdly, here's what he prayed. He prayed that God would let him go to Rome to preach and teach and disciple. Look at verse 10. Always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Here's something beautiful and will kind of help us understand the ways that God works. Paul asked a lot, God, let me go to Rome. Let me go and work. Let, let me go. Let me have the privilege of going to them and helping them. He had tried several times 
The Lord had providentially worked so that he was called to some other places. So it was not yet. Paul did eventually get to go to Rome. You know how he went? In chains. At the very end of the book of Acts, in fact, maybe only one page in front of where you are right now, very last chapter, last verses of the book of Acts, Paul is brought to Rome under arrest, awaiting his trial before Caesar. He's placed under house arrest for two years. And rather than sit and mope and feel sorry for himself, here's what he did. He saw this as God's opportunity for him to get to do what he had been praying for. He set up this vibrant preaching, teaching, discipling, training ministry there in his house. He's under house arrest. He's not allowed to leave. He's allowed to have as many visitors as he wants come to him. So he invites unbelievers to come and he would teach the gospel. Some get converted, some not. I love the fact that we are told that some of the very Roman soldiers chained to his wrist get saved. How about that? Okay, that is so like our God. The very Romans who are supposed to be keeping watch on and making sure he doesn't get in any more trouble, they are converted, they turn to Jesus. That is just exactly like the way that our God works. But he also does this work right here of inviting the Roman believers, the Roman church into his house and preaching, teaching, working, training, equipping, helping them come to faith, a deeper faith in Christ. What a perfect example of desiring the right things, praying for the right things, and God giving him the desires of his heart. You know, scripture says that God gives his people the desires of their heart. And the prosperity preachers love to quote that verse and like they usually do, leave out the important parts because here's what the scripture actually says. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The whole point is that when your heart is transformed and you come to the place that you are delighting in him and not money and not prosperity of the earth, you're delighting yourself in him and you have the kinds of desires like Paul had, like I want souls to be saved, I want to be useful, I want to be holy. When you're desiring those things, God gives the desires of your heart. Paul here asking God to get to go work, preach, teach, minister, serve, strengthen God's people. That's exactly the kind of thing that someone delighting in the Lord wants. Well, here's the second part of this passage. So we've seen Paul praying for the Romans and we see some of his desires coming out there. His second part, Paul's longing to strengthen them in Christ. He's longing to strengthen them in Christ. Look at verse nine. He says, for God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Now that, that phrase right there, God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son. That's a very pregnant sentence. There's, there's a lot going on in there. Let's try to draw some of that out there. First of all, this word serve that he uses there. It's a, it's a very unique word, very, very helpful word. This word in the original language is always used in a worshiping sense. So, so in other words, it's never used like we use the word serve in all kinds of different ways. We might say something like, I'm going to go serve that table or I'm going to go serve my friend. This word right here is never used in that way. There's other Greek words, okay, that refer to that, okay? This word right here is always used in a worshiping kind of context. In fact, sometimes in scripture, it's actually translated as worship. Um, in Romans 1, look at, look at verse 25 as, as an example here. This is later on we'll get to. This is speaking of um, the wicked who reject God. And he says this, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served. That's this word, the creature rather than the creator. So the things that God made rather than God himself. So that kind of language, the worship and serve together makes up this understanding of what it is to truly treasure someone or something as your God, your highest value. You, you worship them in the sense of bowing, prostrating your life to them, but also serving them. Okay, you, you worship money, 
means you love it supremely, Jesus also shows this, you'll serve money. You'll engage your life to do the kind of work that serves money as if it were a God. Now, some modern ideas about worship can kind of make this confusing for folks because sometimes there is sort of this idea that when the church gets together, the whole point is that I, me, emphasis on myself, leave here feeling good. Preacher, it's your job to make me laugh a little bit, okay? Tell me a story that makes me feel good. I need to leave here feeling spiritual. I need to get the warm and fuzzies. Pastor, it's your job to make sure I feel right when I leave, okay? That is so contrary to what we see in the scripture, okay? Real worship, okay? Authentic and pure worship and serving is about forgetting about ourselves and being so enamored with the greatness of God, we fall before him in the process. Yeah, you're helped. Yeah, we're grown. Yeah, we're transformed. You are transformed as you come to see the glory of God. God is transforming us in this work. But the whole point is service is something we do when we worship. When you supremely value someone, something, you will serve them. That's the language that Paul uses here joyful service, joyful service. And so what he is saying is that he serves God in his spirit, in the preaching of the gospel, his worshiping activity, his work is the making known of Christ. All teaching of the word should be an act of worship the rejoicing in the truth, the rejoicing in God and the joyful teaching of his truths. So what does he mean by then by this phrase that he serves God in his spirit? Well, this is exactly what Jesus is getting at in John 4. If you remember that passage of uh, Jesus with the woman at the well, John 4, 23, he says, but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit And in truth, for such people, the father seeks to be his worshipers. There can be some confusion over what is meant, worship in spirit and in truth. But the primary point that Jesus is getting at there is that worshiping God is not to be a merely external act. It's not going through motions. It's not religious rites or actions only. But we are to engage in worship activities while doing so, doing so while our heart is worshiping, while our soul is engaging with God, while our soul uh, loves him, exalts him, rejoices in him. If you remember that place where Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. To worship God in spirit is for your inner man to be rejoicing in God, in awe of God, gratitude to God while engaging in the activity. So, so it is a reality, okay? You're here, we are so glad you are here, but being here doesn't guarantee that you have worshiped this morning. You have gone through actions, you have sang, you have given, we have prayed. We are right now bowing beneath the word to be taught, but that doesn't guarantee that you're worshiping in your spirit. Worshiping in your spirit is your inner man right now. The soul, the heart is all of the affections, rejoicing in God, wanting God, seeking God, seeking to obey him, bow beneath him. It's the inner man engaging in all of these things right here. So to serve God in your spirit, means that the work that you do of ministry, your way that you participate in the life of the body, Jesus says, everybody's called to that. Every Christian called to work, minister, contribute in some way. Your work that you do, whether it's behind the scenes or whether it is in front, is to be done as an act of worship, okay? Yes, the mowing of the grass and the caring for our crazy little ones back in the nursery time, okay? can be, ought to be done as an act of worship. I know that is awfully hard some of those Sundays when them kids be going crazy, okay? But as an act of worship, joyful to get to serve. I want to labor for my God. And so do do you see kind of then how Paul is exemplifying the way that all of this theology that we've been looking at for these last five weeks all tie together? You know, last Sunday, for the last two Sundays, really, we've been looking at the amazing grace of the gospel, what God has done for us us in Christ, 
the hopeless situation he saved us out of, the glory of what he's brought us into. And God has done this. God has saved you so that you will come to know your salvation. You will melt in worship, rejoice in him, and enjoy over your salvation. Long to serve God in your spirit. Let me show this to you in, in the Old Testament a little bit. Psalm 51, if you'll turn there real quick. Psalm 51. By the way, the Psalms teaching us how to worship. Look at something that David prays here and then look at the formula, the equation. Psalm 51, verse 12. Here's what he asked God to start. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Now notice a couple things about that. Number one, it's completely God-centered, not man-centered, okay? David ain't asking for his little Johnny to get to make the starting squad on the basketball team, okay? David is asking something very God-centered for the fulfilling of his purposes, okay? But notice the equation. He asked God, I've lost the joy of my salvation. I've lost the joy of my walk with you. Oh God, restore it to me. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Sustain me, give me that kind of desire to serve you where I don't lose it. I want to keep serving you. So joy of my salvation leads to me wanting to keep serving you. And then what will happen if he comes to joy in his salvation and God gives him this desire to serve? Then I will teach transgressors. I will teach the lost your ways and sinners will be converted. Sinners will be saved. Here's the formula. When we come to joy in our salvation, when we meditate on the gospel and come to amazement over the fact that our God has saved us, it produces something. It produces a start of a longing, just like I can't shut up about this. I have got to tell people, I want to serve him. I want him to, pl I want to please him. I want him to look on me and smile. And, 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 and I want more people to worship him. I want more worshipers in the kingdom. I want more to know him. Inevitably, when you long for God to be glorified, you are going to come to a place where you want everybody to know the message of the gospel and how they can come to faith in Christ. And that's why he follows that up with, oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Serve God in your spirit out of the joy of your salvation. And friends, this is... This is the definition of sincerity. You know, sincerity is basically a way of saying honesty that we engage in works, but not from a heart that's faking it. S sincerity is when your face matches your heart, right? You, you, you've no doubt experienced where um, somebody was nice to you and you knew they had to for some reason. They didn't really want to, okay? When that salesman is flattering you, he doesn't like you, okay? He doesn't care about you. He wants something, okay? That's not sincerity. The Christian is to serve out of sincere joy. Joy, longing to serve. Joy, longing to worship and engaging in the activities. Joy, serving and longing to please God through these things. And all of this joy of our salvation, this heart overwhelmed with gratitude, this sincerity, friends, this is also where zeal comes from. We're seeing Paul's longing, his zeal for the gospel coming out in this as well. Zeal is when you want something so badly, it becomes a fire inside of you. Like the Old Testament prophets talking about, I tried to stay silent, but your word became like a fire in my bones. I couldn't shut up. I tried to not speak because it wasn't going well and I couldn't help it. I had to. Zeal is when there is this craving, this desire, a longing, and it drives you. You know, I, I used to just always call that passion. I, I've come to learn there's a difference. Passion comes from our English word passive, where something is done to us. 
So meaning, you're passionate about something when circumstances, uh, feelings, uh, maybe the mood you, work, you woke up in that day carried you along by these feelings. And that's not necessarily bad. But God calls us to a fervency that is more steadfast than when the moon phase is right and everything feels good. God calls us to a zeal that is a trajectory of life that is based on the decision by us being gripped by the truths of the gospel, being gripped by the grace of God. I have this longing. I have this desire. And so we engage in this work. We see Paul's zeal coming out of this. We see God's zeal being shown here. And so believers, let me add this kind of while we're here. I think this might be some helpful application. So sometimes here's how service goes. Christians can begin a work of ministry and at the very beginning, be all amped up and enthusiastic about it. But over the course of time, especially in some ministries where you don't get told thanks or recognition, appreciation and things, time can go on and that fire of enthusiasm starts to die. The zeal starts to grow cold. The passion you once felt begins to go numb. And there can even come sourness and a bitterness. And, and listen to me, when we are working and it's not out of sincerity, that's the recipe for burnout. That's the recipe for quitting. And so how do we come to, how do we sustain zeal over the long haul? And let me also say this to you. If you're a Christian, maybe you've not yet come to that place where you feel the fire in your bones to serve. Maybe you've not yet grown there. You know it has to exist because you, you see it and you see it, you read it in the scripture, but you've not yet gone there. How do you get it? How do you sustain it? Friends, the secret is, the secret is it lies in the root of it all. It lies in the root of the sincerity, the joy of our salvation. And there has to be work that is engaged in to keep your heart feeling the wonder. To keep, your, your, to keep your soul rejoicing in God, grateful for what he's done. Okay, the preaching of the gospel to yourself throughout the rest of your life is the way that you sustain long years and a lifetime of serving God, especially in ways that exhaust you. It's going to have to be made a part of our lives if we want to imitate Paul's zeal. Well, here's another part under this point as well. Uh, notice verse 11. Read it with me. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. So he says, I want to come to you and I want to impart a spiritual gift to you. So what does he mean by this spiritual gift? Well, we've, we've already kind of started to answer that question, but to help us understand it, let's, let's start at the end. What's the end goal? He says, I want you to be established. Look at a couple passages with me to sort of see what God's goal for believers is. Jump to Matthew 28 for a second. You know this, the great commission, uh, Jesus speaking the great mission that we've been given believers to go to the ends of the earth and tell the message of Christ. But there's a part that's often overlooked. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, okay? Tell them the gospel, bring them out of lostness into life, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then watch this. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We know the Great Commission. We know the call for believers to go and tell the message. But that's not the end of what it means to make disciples. Okay? We are made into a disciple the moment that we trust in Christ, turn from our sins, trust in Christ. In that instant, we're, we're brought from lostness to saved, right with God. We're made a disciple. But God has another part of what it means to make disciples. 
We are also made disciples as we continue to grow in Christ and grow to maturity, strengthening, being brought to that, the fullness of the stature of what God wants us to become. How does that happen? Jesus says, teach these believers to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. So if you notice, there's two parts there. Number one, every believer needs to be taught to know all of the commands and what God has told us in scripture. But not only do we need to be told so that we know about them, but also so that we come to obey those commands. That's two different kinds of teaching. One is kind of this, what you think of right now, this sort of official, there's a pulpit, okay? It's official kind of teaching, but the other kind is that, that, that kind of relationship of, of coming alongside with those long conversations into the night, of, of living in fellowship with each other, that kind of modeling, showing, helping one another know how to obey the commands of God. That's where God wants to bring us. God wants to bring us to this place of maturity, living lives. Well, let me show it to you in another place, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, look at verse 1. This kind of gives a picture. Ephesians 4, 1. Therefore, I, prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This is where God wants to bring us. God wants you to know his word, be mighty in the scriptures, but it's possible to be an egghead that doesn't obey. So he wants to bring us to where we know we're mighty in the scriptures, but we're living obedience to the scriptures. Okay, that's two different kinds of knowledge. This is where God wants us to live in a manner worthy of the Lord. How do we do that? Huh, glad you asked. Later in chapter four, look what he says. Jump to verse 11. He gives this instruction for how God has designed this for happen amongst his people. Verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For, here's their job, church leaders, here's their job, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service or ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. So here's our ministry to one another. We are to grow up into all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ, for, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, that's referring to all of us involved in this, every joint, every member, all supplying, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If you count up, there's about six or seven different ways that he speaks of the end goal of where God wants to bring us. Maturity. Leaving childhood of the faith and coming to that robust walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. God wants maturity. And friends, the work of ministry that we have towards one another in the church body is with this goal. Everything we do is with the goal of we all have responsibility to one another in a church family, in a body, to strive for the building up of all of us to come to a place of maturity in Christ. And the leaders of that, so the apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, all, all that sort of stuff, okay? And there are multiple of those. Their job is to lead the way in the equipping of the saints. It is God's intention for you to grow to this place. So what does Paul want to do when he comes to them? All of that. All the preaching, teaching, ministry, long conversations into the night, fellowship around supper tables, helping them wrestle through their questions about the Bible. We've all got tons of them. Trying to get them to where they're mighty in the scriptures. They know the word of God deeply and then they live like it. He wants to do the great commission among them. The great commission had already started. 
Disciples had been made, but he wants to make them into fully functioning, robust disciples who are willing to sweat, bleed, puke, and die for the name of Christ. They're already believers, but once you become a Christian, your, your story's not over. Your spiritual life has just begun. This is where God wants to bring you and I, Christian. Um, and let me just tell you, for practical application, this is why we have every ministry that we do through the church. Okay, this, this is why we don't just show up on Sundays to have a happy time and then go home. We are after the business of training, equipping, discipling. You, you've probably heard that expression that the church is not a hotel for the saints, but a hospital for the sinners. It is. But it's also military training grounds for the spiritual warfare of the kingdom that God has called you to engage in. And you're going to have to get equipped for that. God's purposes in your life is to grow to maturity. And that is going to take incredible effort. It's going to take all of you. It's going to take an effort where it becomes the great ambition of your life. Nothing else can hold that place. Nothing else can hold that place of what your greatest desire is than to be made into the fully functioning disciple God wants you to be who is useful in this world. Well, just one last part we'll mention here. Look at verse 12. Uh, back in Romans 1. I got to get back to Romans 1. <coughs> Romans 1, 12. Look what he says here. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul knows that when he goes among them, he's coming to work. He's coming to bless. He knows he will be blessed. He's coming to minister. He knows he will be ministered to. He's coming to grow them. He knows he will be grown as well. You know, when you go on a mission trip, the main reason that you go should never be because you want to get out of it. It should be this, this very pure desire. I want to serve, but it is reality almost every time. You're blessed. You're grown. In fact, it can be a very transformative experience. You're never going to reach a place, a status of professional Christian. Um, and that includes Paul. The moment you think you do reach that status, the moment you think you have arrived is the moment that your decline begins and your pride will come before a fall. Notice that phrase that he uses there. Each of us by the other's faith. There's a principle here that God shows other places in scripture. We feed off of one another's faith. We're wired up this way. Fellowship is not just something fun. It is intended for your spiritual well-being. We feed off of one another's faith when we talk about the Lord. When we hear uh, stories about uh, someone you got to share the gospel with this week, someone else hears that and they're inspired. We feed off of one another's faith. It's one of the reasons why hospitality is called by God a spiritual gift in Scripture. Hospitality, having people over for supper. Doesn't sound very spiritual. It's really spiritual. This is a work. Why? We feed off of one another's faith. Paul longs to serve. He longs to preach and teach and build these believers up, but he also looks forward to what God will do in him. So Christian, there's much to imitate here. There's much to see, much ambition, much longing, sincerity, joy. Let me just say, the quality of our service is going to be tested at some point. You're serving, awesome, strive so that the motives of your service are purer and purer. And it's, I think we could probably say it's a guarantee. Something's going to happen that really tests whether or not you're willing to keep going and really test what your motives are. If your desire is to look good, there may come a day that God allows you to not look good. Will you keep serving? If your desire is for glory because it feels good maybe to be in front of people or something like this, day's probably going to come where you're made to look like a fool and you don't get the glory your heart was secretly wanting. Are you willing to keep serving? Out of your spirit, out of the joy of your salvation. 
and to you non-Christian who's not yet responded to the gospel. I, I hope that one of the things you see through here, through this passage is, no, this passage didn't come out and all the way explain every part of the gospel, but the necessity for you to believe on Christ is implied here and in every other verse of the Bible. Nothing even makes sense without this. Every single part of the word of God is all connected with the work of what Jesus has done to die for sins so that you can have forgiveness. The word save, saved, save, salvation is used hundreds, hundreds of times in the Bible. This is what it is all about. Your greatest need is to be made right with God. God offers that to you if you will turn from your sins and you got to admit you have them. Turn from your rebellion and you got to admit you're in it. Turn away from that ignoring of God and come with a heart that submits to Christ, places your faith in Him nowhere else, not trusting in your ability to be good enough because you can't, not trusting in your ability to do religion because that will never save you, but coming to the person of Christ calling out to him, embracing Jesus himself and praying for him to save you. That is your only way of being made right with God. And if you've got questions about that, please don't leave before you ask. And if you want to pray with somebody to turn to Christ, just find me. Let's close in prayer. Oh God, um, please take all that we've looked at, all all the teaching, all, every truth, oh God, and please apply it. Where I've said anything wrong, I ask it will be forgotten. But Lord, wherever there's truth that's right, I pray, God, that it will bear fruit. In your sons and daughters who've trusted in Christ, but God, I, I pray also in those that have not embraced Christ. For our church family, we pray, build us up into the fullness of what you want us to be. Challenge, convict purge, make us holy. Help us, God. Please bless us as we leave. We pray this through Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Longing to be Useful. Tune in again next week as we continue through the Book of Romans. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.